Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're reading verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you do speak to us this morning, that you Reveal yourself in your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious and merciful. Show us wonderful things in this portion of your scripture in Psalm 6. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we enter into Holy Week, Holy Week is a, a week in which we dive into the anguish of the cross and the joy of the resurrection. And as we do so, we're continuing our series on repentance. Now, our series lines up with the season of Lent, and Lent is a season in which the church is devoted to repentance, devoting itself to reflecting on our sins, but also reflecting on the extravagance of God's grace that wipes away our sins. And as we've reflected over these last weeks, we've noted that all too often we unconsciously think of repentance as an isolated event. It's just a, a mere moment in time which begins the Christian life at conversion. So we repent and we believe in Jesus and then we forget about repentance. We leave repentance in the past and we move forward. It's as if repentance is just the milk of the gospel and we need to get to the meat and the potatoes. But Martin Luther, the great German theologian who ignited the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 theses on the church, uh, on the door of the church in Wittenberg, he began those 95 theses with these words. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of, the believe, of believers to be one of repentance. Luther echoes the scriptures and he teaches us that our whole lives are a process of turning away from ourselves and turning towards God. Repentance is both turning from and a turning towards. And it's our whole life that is to be characterized by this turn. And so today we come to Psalm 6, a psalm of lament. It's also a psalm of repentance written to teach us what it looks like to turn to God when we've grown weary of the sickness of sin and the suffering of this life. 
C.S. Lewis captures this weariness in his book, A Grief Observed. I'll give you a little bit of background. C.S. Lewis married uh, Joy Davidman in a, in a civil marriage in order for her to get a, uh, uh, in order for her to immigrate into the United Kingdom. And they lived separately, but as they had grown close to one another, he began to love her like she was his wife. And so he, many years later, he entered into a Christian marriage with her. And a grief observed is his reflection on the sufferings of those last few years and his loss. You see, she had bone cancer. And so for the last few years of their marriage, Lewis took care of her. And then he had to grieve the loss of his wife. And he reflects in a grief observed. At the very beginning, he says these words. At times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is some sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. And no one ever told me about the laziness of grief. I loathe the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much. Even shaving. What does it matter now whether my cheek is rough or smooth? Have you ever been in the place that Lewis was? After pain and suffering, entering into that place of weariness, are you there now? When you loathe the slightest effort and things that seem so natural to you seem to be simply too much. The psalmist here speaks of this being too much as being weary with my moaning in verse 6. He says, I am languishing. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. With these words, he's communicating to us that every aspect of his being, every aspect of his life is troubled. He's in great distress. And we don't exactly know what the troubles were that surround David when he composed this psalm. It's possible that he's weary because of his own sin. He sees the consequences of his sin, or he's experiencing the consequences of the sin, the people that he's hurt, and he's grown weary because of the sickness of his own sin. It's also possible that he's been attacked, that he's on the run, that he's hiding, and he's just grown tired, exhausted of suffering at the hands of his enemies. But either way, David's grown weary because of the sickness of sin. He's grown tired of living in a world that's been violated by sin's touch. He's exhausted. And David here in Psalm 6 walks before you and he walks before me on the road of sin and suffering, on the road of weariness. And he shows you the path to God in those seasons of exhaustion. So what's it look like? What's David show us? What does it look like to turn to God when we've grown tired, tired of sin and tired of suffering? First, David shows us in verses one to five that you call out to God. 
Verses 1 to 5 are a passionate plea for God's mercy. It's an agonizing request for, for God to intervene in David's plight. He says, be gracious to me. Heal me. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. And David bases his pleas for mercy first on his own anguish, recognizing that God is compassionate. He says, be gracious to me, for I am languishing. Heal me, for my bones are troubled. He calls out to God, because God is moved by those who are in distress. He shows compassion to those who are troubled. And David knows this. So he calls out to God because God is moved by his troubles. He also calls out because of God's steadfast love. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. He calls on God to be the God he declared himself to be when he spoke to Moses in Exodus 34. God said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David's pleas, David's call and cry for help are based in God's character. They're based in who God says he is for his people. A few months ago, we finally took the training wheels off of Jack's bike. He was not figuring it out, so we got, a, uh, we got him a balance bike and put some pedals on the balance bike. It's this new, uh, really cool way to learn how to ride a bike. Uh, and then uh, a few weeks after that, he started showing off. You know, he would stand up on his pedals and ride like his sister. He thinks he's a, a big boy, so he wants to uh, yell at mommy and daddy, look at me, look at me. One day he got really, really ambitious, and he tried to pedal while standing up. Not just standing up on his pedals, but pedal while standing up. I see your faces. Y'all know where this is going. The boy got too ambitious, and he fell. And not only fell, y'all, this was like the boy's riding down the road, and he's like, he falls and slides, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, y'all know that pain. I'm talking like scrapes on the knees, cuts on his arms, his hands are busted up. He, he had a helmet, uh, so his head was fine. Everything else was in pain. And what does he do? The boy screams, mommy, and like cries, mommy, not just like screams, hey, mommy, come help me, but like, if y'all have heard Jack cry, it's like a really high-pitched scream, and he screams for mommy. Why? Because he knows his mom loves him. That's who she is to him. And she is moved by compassion. She's moved to care for him. Now she can't fix all of his problems. Can't, can't all this, just make all the scrapes go away. But she comforts him, and he knows that. So what does he do? He calls out. And brothers and sisters, that's why David calls out to God. He knows God to be a loving God. 
that God has declared himself to be this and God has proven himself to be this over and over and over throughout Israel's history. He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, of mercy and grace, and that love moves him to compassion. And that compassion and that love is put on full display this week during Holy Week. Jesus entered into the holy city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he wept over that city saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he would demonstrate God's love by making peace through the shedding of his own blood. He would climb the hill of Calvary and in his own self, he would take the hostility between us and God, securing peace. And he would raise from the dead, securing for us a living hope on Easter Sunday. These things God did for you and for me because of his steadfast love. And it's that steadfast love that causes him to bend a gracious ear as you call out to him for help in the midst of your distress. Whether that distress is sin or whether that distress is suffering, God bends a gracious ear because of his love for you. And so you call out to him because of his compassion and love. But then secondly, verses six to seven teach us that you grieve. You grieve before God. David says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears and drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Y'all, he is so overwhelmed by his situation, by grief and pain that he has no more words. His tears have become his words. His tears have become his cry for help. He lacks the resources to cope with this crisis. So what does he do? He grieves. He pours out his soul to God, honestly offering to God his complaint. In uh, 1983, Nicholas Wolterstorff lost his 25-year-old son, Eric. Eric was climbing in the, the mountains in Austria and had a climbing accident. And in the process of his grief, he journaled. Nicholas would, would just journal and write down his experience. And uh, many years later, he published that journal. It's called Lament for a Son. And he writes this in there. He said, I skimmed some books on grief. They offered ways of not looking death and pain in the face, ways of turning away from death out there to one's inner process of grief. And then on that, laying the heavy hand of rationality. I will have none of it. I will not look away. I will indeed remind myself that there's more to life than pain. I will accept joy, but I will not look away from Eric dead. It's demonic awfulness I will not ignore. 
Boltersdorf echoes David's grief here in Psalm 6. Grief doesn't look away from sin and suffering. Grief doesn't gloss over sin and suffering as if it doesn't exist, but rather you stare it in the face. You see its demonic awfulness. David here gives you freedom to express that weariness and that sorrow to God, to bring it to him openly, honestly, seeing its awfulness and expressing that awfulness to God. And grief like this inhabits a wide range of emotions. Sometimes it's fear. David even here says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Then sometimes it's anger and frustration. Here he says, but you, O Lord, how long? How long do I have to keep going through this? How long do I have to continue to suffer? And we see in other places in the Psalms that it's desperation. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And oftentimes it's even severe sorrow. Every night I flood my bed with tears, drench my couch with my weeping. Derek Kidner, a a commentator on, on the psalm, says this, that depression and exhaustion, as complete as this, are beyond self-help and good advice. If anything is to save David, it will owe nothing to his own efforts. Such is the extremity which God is about to transform. You see, friends, sometimes we inhabit that extremity. Sometimes we inhabit the extremes of our emotional range as we grieve. And what it reveals is that we cannot help ourselves. We cannot fix our own problems. And so we have to grieve. To turn appropriately to God, we grieve the wrongs that we have done and the wrongs that have been done to us. We lament them. We surrender them to God whose strength is made perfect in our weakness. So as you call out to God, you also grieve before him. You pour out your soul to him because his shoulders are broad enough to carry whatever burdens, whatever cares, whatever weariness and sorrow and suffering you bring to him, he can shoulder it. So you grieve. And then lastly, David teaches you that you trust in God. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. Here, David's declaration is confidence in God's gracious ear. He says three times, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. It's confidence that God has heard, that God in fact sees him and accepts his cries for mercy. Now, some of you may believe that that God doesn't hear you that maybe your sins are just too great, that your past or your present is just too tainted, and so God doesn't pay attention to you. But don't you think that if God heard David's prayers, he also hears yours? 
Because David was certainly a man of great faith. He was a man after God's own heart. But he was also a man of great sin. He was a man who had one of his commanders, one of his men killed just to cover up an adulterous affair with the man's wife. He was a man of great sin. And he is still confident that God heard his pleas for mercy. God hears yours too. Even through all the sickness of sin, God hears your pleas for mercy. Maybe you believe that God doesn't hear you because he hasn't answered your prayers in the way that you have asked him to answer them. So maybe, so maybe he's just closed his ears, just closed his ears to your prayers. I had an old friend this week say that he doesn't believe God hears his prayers because he's prayed for years for relief and God has not given him relief from his pain. But let me ask you this. Has David's situation in Psalm 6 changed? Has God yet delivered him from his foes? No. Look at the way it ends in verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. He's not saying that they have been put to shame. It doesn't say that they have turned back. This is a future hope. David trusts in God and that trust is in God's future day of deliverance. You see, David never saw that day. David didn't see the day when all was at peace and, his, and all of his enemies were put to shame. He lived almost his entire life in constant conflict. His son Absalom tried to kill him and take his throne. Sheba, who was a Benjamite of another clan, led a failed coup with almost all of Israel behind him. The only people that were behind David were the men in Judah. There were wars with the Philistines, the Ammonites, sometimes civil war even among the Israelites. And as David neared the end of his life, one of his other sons, Adonijah, tried to usurp his throne and, and, and take over before David could name Solomon king in his place. The restoration of peace that David envisions here has not yet come. He did not get to experience that. But he confidently proclaims that it will. And it's a future that David has to wait for, one that he has not yet even fully experienced. Because that future is that future hope of Jesus Christ. Trusting in God is defiant hope. It's believing that regardless of whether situations change in the here and now, God will act. It's trust that God has heard you and that one day he will make all things right, that he will make all things new, that he will put your enemies to shame and he will deliver you from your trouble. And that day, that one day is the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus when he finally and fully 
delivers our lives from the troubles of sin and suffering. That one day when he will make all the sad things to come untrue and he will wipe away every tear from every eye and all will be right in the world. We're about to sing a hymn titled, All Must Be Well. It was originally written by Mary Bowley Peters, who herself was acquainted with grief. Some of the older records indicate that she was widowed at the age of 21. And she ends the hymn with these words. We expect a bright tomorrow. All will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. All is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying. Yes, in living or in dying, all must be well. These are the words of those who walk with Christ through the valleys of affliction. We grow weary, yes, because of sin and suffering. But we believe, just as, sur just as surely as Christ was delivered from death, he will deliver our lives from death's dark shadow. So we call on him, begging for his compassion and his love, begging for him to act. We grieve before him, bearing all the wounds of sin and suffering before his gracious throne. And yeah, we trust him with defiant hope, believing that one day, he will bring a bright tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for that great promise, that sure hope that though we face difficulty, that though we face days of sorrow and weariness, we can sing through those days because we expect a brighter tomorrow, that one day you will send your son to fully and finally deliver us from sin and suffering. Would you give us hope? Would you comfort us with those words? And would you give us faith to trust you? Pray in Jesus' name, amen.